Well, as Americans, we have an interesting relationship with authority. We love our authorities so much that every four years, we try to get rid of them and get new ones. And it's interesting, you know, we have our authorities on paper, and they're in Washington, or they're up the street here in the Capitol. And though they might have a certain level of authority over us, they're not always really the ones who are actively speaking in our life, changing us, shaping us, affecting our hopes, our fears, and our dreams. You see, there's authorities. There's authorities that are authorities on paper, but then there are those compelled authorities in our lives. And you know who yours are. There are those men and women who have influenced you, who have affected you, who have shaped your lives, preferably for the good, who have come alongside of you, who have built clout with you, who you found rapport with them. And through the duration of time that God gave you each together, they influenced you and made you something better. This week I had a chance to think back on some of my authorities, my compelled authorities in my life, and it was very sentimental for me. So I thought about my grandfather who invested in me, who loved me, who came alongside of me. He taught me how to fish. He taught me how to mow the grass. He taught me how to play baseball. He taught me how to relax after a long day of work, which sometimes I still need to learn to apply in my own life. But he taught me also how to love one woman for the duration of your life, to walk humbly with the Lord. When you're not doing anything glorious in life, he was a factory worker. But he faithfully loved the Lord, raised his family in the faith, and passed on that faith to his grandchildren as well. Friends, in our passage and throughout the book of Mark and throughout the Gospels, Christ is presenting something to us about himself, that he's a compelled authority in our life. Is he an authority on paper? Oh my, yes. God of God, light of light, of light very God of very God, begotten, not made. Oh my, yes, he's an authority, far greater than all authorities under heaven. But he's not just an authority that busts into your life and forces you can, to convert at the sword or bullies you and oppresses you and flogs you. No, 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 no. He's the kind of God that comes in the flesh, that traverses time and space, that enters into human likeness and comes and speaks to us face to face. He teaches us. He directs us. He leads us patiently in his ways and opens us to criticize him, listening to our criticisms and faithfully responding through his words and actions. Friends, Christ is a compelling authority. He's the compelling authority. And this morning I want you to see the ways in which he's beginning to unfold this argument about himself and about his identity. That he doesn't just sit exalted in heaven, but he comes to win our affections and to earn the right for us to call him Savior. Well, let's go to our passage and see the ways in which Christ is building this argument about his person, his character, his witness, and his work. We're going to notice his uh, compelled authority in at least two different ways, in his teaching ministry and also in his ministry in exorcism, in expelling demons from those whom they possess. Well, our passage begins in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum resided on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. You can actually go there today. You can get a ticket and you can enter into the village itself and you can look around and you can see the city in where, or the town in which Christ ministered. 
In the first century, it was a population of somewhere around 3,000 people, although those numbers could expel and contract depending on the time of day and what was going on in the business there, in the uh, courts, in the uh, opening um, places of commerce. And it was a fishing village. One of the things you'd notice besides it being on the sea in a fishing village is all around there's this black stone that marks and that defines the foundations of what were once homes where people lived. You'd notice that the space itself isn't huge, though a town of 3,000, it was about the size of our property here at Redeemer. And in the back far corner, there was a, there's a building, there's a foundation that's about the size of our sanctuary here at Redeemer. And that was the synagogue. The building that you see there today was not the synagogue of Jesus' day. That was destroyed in an earthquake and then it was later rebuilt. But we know the place and roughly the size of the space in which these circumstances actually happened. And he's teaching there on the Sabbath day and he's doing so in the context of the synagogue. We don't know a lot about worship in the synagogue in the first century We know that there were written and that there were prayers that were spoken and sung by the people uh, there in the synagogues in their worship. We know also that there were scripture readings from the prophets and from the law that were given. And we know also that it was a custom for, uh, toward the end of the sermon, for a layperson who had been nominated and had rapport among the congregation to come and speak into how the text they had read applied to the life of the believers and of the um, people of God there in the synagogues. It's likely at this interval that Christ is speaking in the synagogue. This tells us something about his initial authority, that he was known in the area, that he was welcomed and invited to come and speak and to uh, expound on the teaching of God's word and how it applied to those who were there in the synagogue. It also uh, communicates something to us about his rapport with the people and about his perceived godliness even here at this juncture in his ministry. You see, we know when we hear Jesus all kinds of things about his life and his ministry, but at this point in the first century, Jesus is still relatively a stranger. He hasn't given the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't healed the blind and the lame. He hasn't done all of the miraculous things that we know and remember him for. Here, he's essentially unknown, known well enough to teach, but not yet, uh, the rest of his ministry had not yet occurred. And so at his teaching here in the synagogue, we see the response recorded by Mark, the impression that was left by Jesus' teaching among those hearers. And they were astonished at his teaching. They were in awe. They were taken out of themselves, as you've perhaps experienced sometimes when you hear a very gifted speaker speak, that he had the ability to to convey what was true and what was good and what was right in such a way that it powerfully convicted and convinced their souls. And his words were so profound and true and fresh that they raised their affections and hearts and pulled them out of themselves in reflecting on what was good and right and true. Perhaps you've wondered what it would be like to sit under Jesus' teaching. And from the rest of the New Testament, from the Gospels, we're actually able to draw a lot of conclusions about what that experience would be like. We know that Jesus often expounded the Scriptures. He was familiar with the Scriptures. He was fluent in the original languages and cultures as they were the languages and cultures of his day. His teaching emphasized common and recurring themes, understanding the kingdom of heaven, 
understanding his own place as its initiator. He was also preparing his disciples to understand how they fit and are to live now as citizens of that kingdom. Jesus was obviously familiar with the scholarship of his day and living in a high point of Jewish scholarship. It's interesting that you realize Jesus never lost a debate on the law of God that he was either invited into or that he initiated with the greatest scholars of his time. You see, the comment here in Mark and another place in the New Testament is that Jesus did not teach like one of the scribes. You realize the scribes are the scholars of the law. They knew, grasped, and understood what the Word was supposed to be teaching. But Jesus' teaching was better than the best of his own day. William Henderson, or William Hendrickson comments saying that he, Jesus, taught the mind of God in fresh ways that transcended the abilities and insight of the greatest scholar of his day. You see, Jesus was no mere country preacher. He was received in his day as the greatest authority on Scripture from the beginning of its, his ministry to its conclusion. See, friends, I think if we had the chance to hear Christ teach, we'd be left with the impression that we had just heard the greatest teacher ever to expound the Scriptures themselves. And it makes sense, because unknowingly to his audience, they were hearing the author of Scripture teach the Scriptures to themselves. See, friends, I'll offer a shameless plug here for studying the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, how rich and true they are at nurturing us, at feeding us, and at communicating to us the mind of God. Oh yeah, there's cultural disconnects. We're living some 2,000 years later. But is it worth the study, the time, the, the commitment, the investment of resources to understand what the ministry and teaching of Christ are about? Oh my. And I guarantee, if you commit yourself to studying the Gospels, you will abundantly be blessed. Well, in the midst of this euphoric state of the audience being enraptured by Jesus' teaching and having a sense that they were hearing someone unlike anyone else that existed that day and his ability to handle the Scriptures and teach it and communicate it afresh, something happens that dramatically interrupts the service. All of a sudden, a man possessed by a demon enters, makes himself known, and starts hurling accusations at the preacher in the midst of the sermon. I mean, you can imagine what this would have been like uh, if in a con context or congregation similar to our own in size that the service is dwindling down and all of a sudden, bam, this happens. Well, it's interesting to note here that as we pause and think about what's happening here, often our impressions are to resist the reminders that we live in a world that is not just occupied by natural, physical things. You see, there are spiritual powers that are at bay, that are at play. I don't know all of the details that go into the circumstances of demonic possession. Not because I'm a fool, but because we're only given so much insight into Scripture. We know that it happens. We know that it can happen. We know that the adversary of God is endowed with great power. But also we see here in our passage how small that power is in comparison to the power of God incarnate himself. 
You see, the demon comes and speaks, and in his speeches, he communicates something to us about the adversary's method as he interacts with Christ and with his people. Firstly, we see that he loves to interrupt the worship of God's people and the teaching of Christ. When does he act? Right immediately when people are caught in a state of wonder and awe at Christ. That is where he focuses his attack. We see secondly in his two questions and in his statement that there are certain things he's trying to do with Christ. Let's consider these things here in our passage. He says to him, he cries out to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? See, his first question, he's identifying to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I know who you are. What are you doing here? See, that's like that intimidation tactic that you see in mob movies, where initially when there's the witness or there's someone that they're trying to get, they you know, have the drive-by. They don't do anything. They just drive by, they roll down the window, they look out as the guy's getting his newspaper there on the front step, and the guy knows that the mob's watching. See, that's exactly what's going on here in the passage. Satan's already been active in the world. Jesus has already been tempted in the wilderness. Now here, right at the start, on the first day of Jesus' preaching ministry, the devil shows up, and he rolls down the window, and he says, Jesus, I've got my eye on you. Well, what happens next? What's his next tactic? He accuses Jesus of evil intentions. He says, have you come to destroy, notice, us? You see, he's not just talking about himself. He's also talking about the host that he's possessing, both of them. See, it's interesting. One of the great techniques in debate is if you can accuse your adversary of what you're actually doing before you do it, then you shift the blame to them, right? This is a great tactic for a liar. Accuse your accusers of being a liar, then everyone thinks it's them and stops looking at you. Well, here that's exactly what the, de- what the demon is doing. He's accusing Jesus of ill intent. Are you wanting to destroy me and the host? And then he moves finally to his uh, third his statement, not his question here. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, here the demon is actually showing his hand. I know what your intentions here are on earth. He uses a phrase, the Holy One of God, which isn't explicitly messianic, but it's enough of a clue to Jesus that the demon knows that Jesus has a purpose here on the earth. And at any point, he can tell and let the cat out of the bag that Jesus is here as the Messiah. Now, why would he do this? See, Jesus is very guarded in the Gospel of Mark about his messianic identity. He doesn't shy away from it. He's transparent with the apostles when they ask him, but he wants to let that information out on his own timeline. Here the demon is saying, I know who you are, and at any moment I can subvert your authority. Well, what's Jesus' response here in the passage? He rebukes him. And what takes about one, two, three, four, five, six, about seven words in English could have been, if he's speaking in Hebrew, uh, given in about two quick statements. He says, be silent and come out of him. And immediately what happens? Well, the demon results to his final tactic, 
causing actual physical harm and torment against his host as he is then expelled. You see, we see the tactics of the demon that he wants to interrupt the worship of God's people. He wants to intimidate, accuse of evil, threaten, and cause physical harm. But in comparison to the power, Christ shows up, utters a few words, and the demon's gone. I mean, even before the people know what happened to them, the situation is already concluded. A professor of mine made the comment that God does not write good action sequences. Because all the enemies of God amass around him, and immediately God takes care of the problem. There's no combat. There's no great fight. There's no fencing of great heroes. No, God speaks, and the conflict is over. And that's precisely what happens. So what happens in our passage? The people have seen a great show, they've heard a great sermon, and they're left completely awestruck before the person of Jesus Christ. What do they say? They say, what is this? Who is this man? He brings a new teaching with authority, unlike any that we've heard. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And then interestingly, they depart and they begin to immediately spread his fame and reputation throughout all of the area, throughout all the countryside. You see, it's interesting. Christ had a plan for each and every one of those individuals. He'd brought them through the varying circumstances of their life and what they thought was just going to be a normal Sabbath day like any other Sabbath day. He had intended to show them his own glory. Not all of it, but a little taste to compel them, to prove to them that he was worthy of their proclamation wherever it is that they might be. Friends, this shows us something about the compelled authority of Christ. He's not simply working in our lives to compel us to believe his own authority, though that's the first step. He's also working in our lives to form us into compelling authorities of Christ. Through the lives, through the experiences of our lives, through our stories, he's showing us and giving us a taste of how we are to live and operate in the world amidst all the crazy circumstances that we never saw for ourselves when we were 18. But he's encountering us and engaging us day after day with his person, with his ministry and presence that we might then take and carry his gospel into every place that we might go and inhabit, from our homes to our workplaces and wherever we might go. Well, John, how can I do this more specifically? See a few things that are worth noting in our passage and elsewhere in Scripture. Daily putting on Christ. Remembering every single day is a new day that he's given to us to trust his authority and also to embody the kind of authority that he has shown us that character of servanthood and of humility and of fidelity to bringing others to the truth. We also remember that we are to live humbly and openly before one another and before our fellow man, and also in the midst of all of the circumstances of our life, to watch and wonder. Does God have wonders for us to experience in life? Oh, yes. Most of them occur as we interact and as we interface with the truth of God's word and as we compare that to the circumstances of our life. But life is meant to be enjoyed and enjoyed in Christ. Let us do so this day. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the example of your Son. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon us as we continue in worship this day. May you continue to form these truths through us, through the remaining elements of worship, what you have for us uh, this day. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.